0: Episode 392 of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson for lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government. And the views we're about to express do not reflect the opinions of our institutions, our firms, our clients, our family, or our friends. And joining me for the news roundup, uh, Tatiana Bolton, who is the policy director for R Street's cybersecurity team. Dave Itell, who's an information security specialist and founder of the Itel Foundation. Maury Schenck, London-based lawyer and technologist. I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, the chief provocateur for today's program. Uh, we've got a whole bunch of stories. There is a theme, I think, but let's see if it emerges from this. Uh, I wanted to start out just with a little bit of a retrospective. log 4 j when it came out, it was 10 out of 10. It was the the highest uh, CVE score anybody would ever gotten. And everybody was in a panic. The FTC, you know, soiled itself in its eagerness to uh, <laughs> uh, attack uh, companies that failed to take action. And yet disaster hasn't befallen us. There was a lot of effort, but the effort was driven by fear that this was kind of unfixable and yet we're just not seeing massive we're seeing uh, exploits but they're not really changing our relationship to our computers and dave i don't know this feels a little like y2k you can't be sure whether the disaster was averted because everybody was scared or everybody was scared without a good enough reason
1: you know You know, uh, Y2K is a great analogy, but I will say there are some really key differences. And before I go on, if you're still using CVSS2, this is only a 9.3. Ah, that's right. I mean, there you go. But but let's take a little – retrospectives are so valuable when you look at these sort of things because – we so often fail to gather enough information to get sort of a strategic picture. But in this case, we know the vulnerability was reported late November, November 24th. We don't know if anyone on the Chinese, you know, researcher side used it before that. We still and, – and two months later, we still don't know the answer to that question. We have no reporting that anything was exploited before they gave it to the vendor. Log4j – for people who are not like serious developers is an extremely performant high, like it's sort of used for a lot big cluster systems for doing anything in sort of the Java enterprise world, which it turns out is what runs our whole lives. And so the difficulty here is that it is also the area where we have the very least visibility. And so when Jen Easterly from CISA came out and gave like an interview, I think, A month ago she was like you know what we're really not seeing a whole lot you know obviously we want everyone to patch but we're not seeing you know massive impact from this vulnerability the way we feared and and she was saying she was
0: saying that from inside a federal network which would have all of those complex systems and some visibility into them so it wasn't just that they she was looking at external data
1: and i and i assume also based on you know, human intelligence, signals, intelligence, and other reporting, right? So like when you're making assumptions about risk and threat, you're not just using what you see on your network, hopefully, at, right. at, at CISA's level. But the reality is, and this is a problem that we have, is that the traditional Unix and Linux systems are where we have the least visibility. We have almost no visibility. And that's a humongous problem. So making a strategic assumption that, oh, we didn't see a whole lot, But actually, we can't see a whole lot. We're nearly blind. Mm. And that is, I think, a a bit of a spanner in the works when trying to figure out what the real impact was. The other part of this is it's not like Y2K, where what you're worried about is denial of service or systems crashing or going down. What you're worried about here is long-term data exfiltration from sophisticated adversaries, which you might not see for years. And you may never see. So I would say... The problem with figuring out what, you know, what the impact of any of these things is, is that you have to sort of judge it on a curve based on how much you know about the impact. In this case, we know almost nothing. What you can judge is how well you reacted. And I think the answer to that is we reacted better than we ever have. You saw, you know, CISA, as young as it is, toddler age is you know, starting to crawl and walk a little bit. It's great. Yeah. You know, we still have a long, long way to go. So that that's kind of the summary of log four J. Is two months later, we still have a lot more questions than answers. We don't really have, you know, people point out that like we could have like software bill of materials, you know, that's not up up and running yet.
0: Right. And that would have been great uh, uh, to know that. Do you think that there's a problem with exploitation here that you need to know more than just how to find the log4j problem to actually do something once you've ex- compromised a, uh, a
1: log? There, yeah, there's a bunch of issues here. You know, I've heard from people who run large bug bounty programs that they're paying hundreds of thousands of dollars a month to bug bounty hunters. Mm. And this is one of the other things that you see is that, you know, a lot of your sort of telemetry is showing you not hackers, but bug bounty finders, <laughs> right? So they just light up everywhere. So that that kind of adds a little bit of a confusion to everything that you're doing. And, you know, it may be we have not seen the worst of the impact yet. So that's, that's a major difference between this. I think the closest analogy to this would be the shell shock vulnerability. Mm-hmm. Where, you know, months after the vulnerability comes out, we're finding 911 systems that are still vulnerable. You're finding, you know, VPN systems that are still vulnerable and no one has realized how to hit yet. So let's just say that this is one of those vulnerabilities with an extremely long tail. And to to sort of say that we're out of the wind or that our efforts were successful is not necessarily happened yet
0: so let, let me ask a, another question if log4j gets you in and once you find it you're in does that still does that mean that your best defenses are what and i'll ask tatiana to jump in on this too what the white house is pushing they, they put out a very detailed zero trust blueprint or roadmap uh, for agencies with some urgency. And I just wonder if there is a connection here between going to zero trust and trying to deal with log4j's long tail.
2: So I think they, I think they are, or at least some people are connecting some of the faster response and, and all of the action surrounding zero trust and all of this about for to log four J. I'm not sure that that's necessarily true. I mean, the executive order that was released, well, almost nearly a year ago now, 14208, about improving the nation's cybersecurity is re- was really the impetus for all of this. So the Zero Trust, just to back up a little bit, the Zero Trust, OM- the OMB guidance that was just drafted Basically says that the federal government needs to take a a look at a a few specific areas, including identity, devices, networks, applications and workloads and data, and try to control those uh, more closely, move to a zero trust environment.
0: Just to to back up briefly on this, zero trust, the idea of zero trust is just because you're inside the network doesn't mean we trust you. Uh, and we, need to, we yeah. need to start treating everybody who's moving around inside the network as though they just came in from the Internet and their shoes are yes. still on. Uh, yeah. And that makes perfect sense, has made sense for five years. And 20. What, 20 years. <laughs> something like that. In any event, uh, this is a pretty detailed attempt to address that, to have multi-factor authentication and segmentation of the networks and limits on all access, on the theory that we should treat everybody like internet access, and holding out the prospect that, I guess, if we if we have enough security that way, maybe people could come straight in from the internet to, to get access to apps that currently are walled off. By requiring them first to log on to their main agency network and then go on to the, the super secret side, I thought it was a. I thought it was pretty good. I don't know I, whether uh, Dave has views about the extent to which it will change our cybersecurity posture.
1: Well, I mean, zero trust is a good thing, but as any centipede could tell you, segmentation is not free. <laughs> so the additional complexity of all the segmentation can come at a very high cost. And, you know, for a lot of these federal agencies, high cost might mean not doable. Yeah. And, you know, that's a high maintenance cost. It's not even like, oh, just buy, you know, all these products because deploying and, and using the products it requires skills that you might not have within an agency. So then you start seeing a, a further drive to move to the cloud, to move to having other you know, outside people manage your systems for you. And so it sort of continues to drive that, that ecosystem that is the federal IT budget. And I, think, I don't think Log4j is going to be your bread and butter kind of vulnerability for Zero Trust. I think your bread and butter vulnerability for Zero Trust is probably going to be client sides and outside access. That's where you usually hit it. They have like a software-defined perimeter before they have a software-defined interior, mm-hmm. if that makes sure. sense. So that's where, I mean, these are all, this is a road the federal government desperately needs it needs to march toward that north star but i don't know that we're you know gonna get all the way there yet nope if well I'm
2: li- take a look at like you know you're talking about some of the agencies that might not have money to do this granted true but You also have the federal CISO who's supposed to be watching out for this. You've got the DOD. And if you take a look at some of the requirements, for example, that federal staff have enterprise managed accounts and devices that federal staff use to do their jobs are consistently tracked and monitored and finding and making sure you you do a review of your existing assets. I mean, if we haven't I mean, the fact we haven't been doing that already is tragic. And so, you know, if you think about those requirements that they're currently setting out in this draft or in this in this guidance, and you think about DOD when you're talking about it, or CISA and DHS, I mean, you almost want to say, like, where the hell have you all been for the last you know, 10 years? What have you been doing if you haven't been identifying your assets and tracking your users while they're, you know, on their your networks? I mean, I think that this is a very good step in the right direction. I think it also shows how bad we've been doing it so far. And the fact that we haven't been, you know, there have been more phishing attacks or more hacks into the federal network is a miracle. So, uh, you know, I'm really glad. I think this is a big step in the right direction. OK,
0: if you think there could be more, I'm not sure there could be more. But I, all right, let's switch gears a little because Facebook or Meta bailed out of the a major cryptocurrency project uh, last week. DM, it used to be Libra. And it was, I, I think, generally viewed as a pretty significant backing down from a project that apart from the metaverse was one of the big new initiatives that Facebook seemed to be pursuing. Maury, what can we learn
3: from this? Well, you say apart from the metaverse, but I don't think you can... Cryptocurrency has such a huge and emerging role in the metaverse. I don't think we can believe that this is a backing away by Facebook from cryptocurrency. I think that this particular project has got a bad flavor about it. Maybe they didn't like the partnership. The stablecoin aspect has financial stability implications. The Federal Reserve pushback, which would get to those financial stability implications, was supposedly a straw that broke the camel's back. So I say it's a significant climb down from a big aspirational project, which was originally something different when it was Libra, and a big failure for David Marcus, who was the leader of it. It's not, it's We'll see we'll see Facebook back in crypto.
0: Yeah, that could be. It really was a a very very high powered team of people from uh the US government and and elsewhere, team sort of like breaking up the the uh PayPal mafia. We may see that team go on to success elsewhere in several different institutions.
3: Well, they sold DM, so, you know, they
0: Yeah, you know, so maybe for scrap, but the... we'll see. <laughs>
3: Well, you know there are a lot of new stable coins coming along, and there's some big ones that probably dm isn't going to immediately take over for, but I suppose there will be people who want those assets I, uh, but I, yeah go ahead there's lots of ways they could come back yeah
0: i I'm just struck by the fact that, that for for facebook this was they launched just after they had Gone through the uh, experience of being toxified for helping Donald Trump and Cambridge Analytica. And that plus regulatory concerns about cryptocurrency. Gave the regulators a lot of sway here, and they used it uh, to beat up Facebook because they don't like any cryptocurrency, and, and Facebook was handy. That's my guess about uh, what's going on here. In fact, I think we're going to see a lot of regulatory swagger going on. Not just the White House telling people how to do uh, zero trust networks, but saying to all the agencies of the government, practically, we wanted you to tell us what the cryptocurrency rules ought to be f- from a national security point of view and what leverage you have to impose them. I thought that was interesting. This is a, a kind of semi-leak from Barron's, but it made sense that this would be a memo that would be sent out to initiate a new interagency process. Maury, do we know more about that than than this one?
3: Well, there's been a number of reports on it now, and it's the suggestion is that there is a major interagency process that's going to lead to, it sounded like to an executive order or some kind of uh, national strategy statement, or maybe both across a wide range of areas. And that sounds credible to me. I mean, if you were the Biden administration and you were confronting this massive, you know, multifaceted issue of cryptocurrency, I think you would approach it via some kind of strategy, which is then going to have to break down to the individual components.
0: Yeah, we're at the stage now in the administration where they have enough people in at below the secretary level that they can run an entire policy process that they trust because it's their people. And I think what we're seeing here is the White House clearly wants to do something regulatory here, and they want to get everybody on board thinking of regulatory leverage that they have over cryptocurrency and come up with a policy that they can announce, you know, in the next year. I and maybe it will be an executive order or a presidential memorandum. But if you're in the crypto business, you should probably brace for impact cuz they wouldn't do this if they didn't want to have new regulatory uh, activity.
3: Yeah, I think that's right. And I mean, meanwhile, the SEC, which is of course not exactly the administration, but Gary Gensler was chosen by the Biden administration is coming out I think just last week, they've announced that they may uh, regulate DeFi exchanges as uh, securities exchanges. So there's lots coming in this area.
0: Yeah, yeah. well, Gensler is a, a more regulatory swagger from Gensler coming up. Well, i, I just talk about it now uh, briefly. Uh, he gave a speech to Northwestern, I think, in which he really talked about a whole bunch of regulatory opportunities that he saw involving cybersecurity, more Parts of the financial industry ought to be covered by the uh, resilience regulations, more disclosure by public companies of cybersecurity risks, more obligations. I think this is, I think this is the most interesting and probably most useful. more obligations on suppliers of services to financial industry so that there'll be a, the, what in DOD you would call flow down clauses and requirements in which if you want to do business with banks, the banks are going to say, we are obliged by the SEC, well, not banks, but brokers, we're obliged by the SEC to impose these security requirements on you. So lots of ideas that those, he was just trying out ideas, but again, You know, the regulatory enthusiasm, this administration has at the working level more enthusiasm for regulation than we have seen in a generation. Even the Obama administration was full of people who had. Clinton legacy aversion to getting into regulatory issues, especially on computer and networking and cybersecurity issues. And that's, I think, gone. Uh, and what we're seeing is a flowering of enthusiasm for regulatory ideas involving Silicon Valley. That's my guess, at any rate. Well,
2: and I think, if I may jump in here, I I think that's also, I think that's also been a long time coming because right now cyber is a little bit of a wild, wild west with no rules of the road, no sort of real standards or requirements for a majority of critical infrastructure sectors. You know, I leave finance and energy sort of out of that, but you know, I, I think that. People have come to see the weakness in a voluntary sort of uh, framework, as we've seen more and more cyber attacks and intrusions, starting, I think, with SolarWinds, but then Colonial Pipeline and Log4j. And so I think that that is really what's causing a lot of this action from the SEC. Uh, a little bit later, we're going to talk about FERC, CIS, OMB. I think all of it is coming together because I think we're just we're seeing people change their minds about how we improve cybersecurity.
0: Yeah. Well, look, I, you know, in the Clinton administration, if you said it's the wild, wild west, policymakers would have said, yeah, isn't it great? Uh, and now that, that, that that's a bigger problem. And I agree with you. If FERC is doing more. I, you know. I'm a skeptic about FERC and cybersecurity, just because I don't. I'm, I'm not convinced they have the clout to to make some of their cybersecurity stuff stick, and so they're always sort of limping along at the end of the parade in what they require. But they did announce that they wanted something new from the energy regulators at NERC. Uh, what what did they actually say?
2: Yeah, so basically, FERC released a notice of proposed rulemaking in order to try and harden critical infrastructure protection reliability standards, and it was be, it was targeted at high and medium impact bulk electrical system cyber systems. So, you know, bulk systems are the you know the more complex networks of electrical generation resources and their and the transmission lines and they're trying to oh well I think this is an, again in response to the solar winds because they were concerned about the way in which an attacker could bypass all of their network perimeter defenses and so they're directing the North American electric well uh a reliability Commission to develop the standards to require internal network monitoring. Back to what Dave was saying at the beginning, right, is there's external and internal monitoring, and they want to try and get more internal monitoring and create standards around that because they believe that the existing standards focus only on network perimeter defenses, and that is not sufficient in our existing environment.
0: Well, that's good to hear that. <laughs> I, that they finally figured that out. It's it feels a little late. This feels like a low rent version of the note. Don't the, the, all
2: the, of them feel late? Don't they yes, all kind of feel are. late? But
0: this feels later than the late. Uh, <laughs> this is not fashionably late. This is this is really late. Uh, I mean, they haven't they haven't gotten to, to zero trust. This is kind of a low rent version of zero trust.
2: But to be fair, I think they'll be swept up in the zero guidance pulled out by OMBs, which is why I think it's yes. so great that OMB well, is doing those
0: as nurk. opposed to. Yeah, FERC and NERC networks will have to, but the, the grid networks, and, and, you know, Dave, if there's a network that, if you don't think you can see what's happening in a Linux network, you should try one of these operational networks that run grid systems. You can't see anything going on in there easily, eh? and and there are very few sort of audit tools. So that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to get people to d- develop these and install audit tools and monitoring tools. And that's a it's a great idea. I, I, I shouldn't rag on them for uh, being uh, late to the party. These networks are really hard and really dangerous to try to fiddle with and impose security on. But it's scary when they uh, recommend this stuff and you realize that they didn't have it before.
1: I think one of the things about zero trust is that at its heart, it's about identity, global context, and attaching that to access control. But if you don't have already built in decent access control, decent management on your network, then everything becomes zero trust. And so that's, I think, what we're seeing a little bit is like zero trust itself is, is probably a small piece of the things we are calling zero trust just to get all these networks like up to basic table stakes. Uh
0: All right. And just to round it out, I think this might be the last of the regulatory swagger items, but the, the White House has been going through some cybersecurity sprints, and they just announced that the next sprint Kind of a 100-day effort to come up with mechanisms for improving a, a particular sector's security is to work with the EPA on water system security, which, you know, is the kind of thing you don't miss until it's gone, but it could be gone. Uh, and many of those systems are municipal systems so that they their budget is last in line behind the police and the fire department and zoning boards. Uh, uh, and so they have almost no room for security. And the EPA's authority, well, first you kind of say, what does the EPA know about cybersecurity? And then they have very limited authority to act, demand that water systems have better security, even though, you know, uh, you're basically sitting there with uh, the water on one side and a whole bunch of chloride that could kill people on the other and mixing it using your IT system. Uh, it's a little scary and should be. And I wish the White House well in figuring out a way to improve these networks, because I, I don't think they're easy to improve.
1: Is that you asking for regulation?
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, so, look, is that what oh, I just heard? I, 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 what? I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm a bad Republican. I...
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: But I think a good Republican, because you don't want us to die from overchlorinated water through a cyber attack. So hats off <laughs> right. but i will by the way i will by the way take us take slight and partial credit for the cyberspace solarium commission on this one because we were hammering this stuff home for water this was one of our call-out boxes in the report and i think because chris Inglis is in the ncd i think he's you know he's driving this as well mark montgomery was obviously you know very focused on this and either has come out with a report or is about to come out with a report on water. I think he already released it. It's extremely important, to your point on EPA. They've got two people.
0: Yeah. Two
2: people to do cybersecurity for the entire water systems. You know how many municipal water systems there are? Over 80,000. So to try to address all of these issues with two people is, I mean, uh, well, we need one of your expert, you know, analogies here, Stuart. Yeah, I I,
0: I, 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 think it, it, it's, it, it's, it's a mess. Especially because if you do anything that actually matters, the White House will hear from every or practically every big city mayor in the country, and they will not be happy saying you're you're making me spend money where why don't you give me some money instead uh, and
2: well the state's got one billion dollars yeah. right okay. to improve their cyber security and i think this is absolutely a high target for where they should spend some of that money and the states and the mayors should you know rest a little bit on their complaints because look at Oldsmar. do you want new york city to be that no i mean granted new york city cyber command doing a great job. Probably not going to let that happen. But like, you don't want an Oldsmar on a larger scale. And so, you know, I mean...
0: Oldsmar was an yeah, actual you know, hack of the, of the system that did try to release chemicals into the drinking water, if I remember right.
2: Correct. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it, it was stopped, but, you know, a little too close for comfort. Yep.
0: All right. Well, I... Close for, too close for comfort. Uh, we have managed not to talk about the uh, possible Russian invasion of Ukraine, but there is a cyber angle already there. Hackers went after the Belarusian railway because of the threat of an invasion of Ukraine. Dave, how did that work and what did they do?
1: I thought we threatened the Russians with export control, and therefore they were going to pull completely back. I, I don't know uh, how, uh, yeah, that's how this just isn't going to work. Maybe maybe, nice. the, maybe they did, nice the, one. and they're just blaming
0: the hackers.
2: <laughs> Putin's given up already. He's gone home.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, you're getting sanctioned again. Who knows? So I th- here's the thing about hacktivism, which is that almost all hacktivism, like 99.9% of hacktivism is not hacktivism. So you get as like a cybersecurity professional, you sort of like get used to the idea that everything you're reading is a lie. And so like, you know, you know, you'll see these sort of little fake Twitter personas that announce a hack of, you know, especially Israel and Iran have been going back and forth, back and forth. And it's impossible, you know, the operation anonymous hack some random thing dot com whatever's out there so this has been going on for like years so it started out a couple hacktivists existed then almost everything was fake fake hacktivism and so when you look at the cyber partisans as a like policy professional you're kind of like are they real because your instinct is that no there's it can't possibly be real but they're very different from a lot of the things that you normally would see and it, it's sort of been very you know they're very consistent first of all in terms of their messaging, in terms of their operations, what they're doing, they, they seem to have a real presence. They're on Twitter, they, they are on telegram, they, are, they, they have essentially spokesperson. The,
0: they're, they're opponents of Lukashenko, domestic opponents, they say, or maybe uh, external opponents of Lukashenko, who've done a lot to demonstrate their contempt for him. And this is of a piece with that.
1: We believe, right? So everything has to be copy with, as far yep. as we know, with anything in this space. But what, what happened was you know, they've been hacking – they've been doing major hacks, not just little hacks. They say they're a group of about 30 people, a couple pen testers, but mostly just IT people. But they've been doing really major hacks of Belarus infrastructure, including the prisons, including police databases, releasing who's in the secret police, including mm-hmm. all sorts of different things. right So all the things you would ex- you know, expect – a real hacktivist to be doing, and they've you know released that information and, and tried to have as much impact as possible, as far as we know. And the most recent one was of the trains. So they hacked the Belarusian train system, and they've released you know they've pr- you know provenly released internal documents from the train system, and in theory you know had some minor impact. Now I don't think there's been any reporting to support that it did anything in particular to the Russian deployment.
0: So the the idea was they wanted to prevent the Russians from using Belarusian rail system to bring tanks to the border with Ukraine. Uh, and yeah, I, there there hasn't been much evidence that that has been slowed. They did say that they were not disabling the sa- safety systems. That they,
1: they, they, this was pretty carefully right. limited. And this mirrors the attack against Iran that happened last month as well. I'm not suggesting the two groups are the same group, but there was an attack against the Iranian train systems that was very similar and also took a lot of care not to, you know, do to, you know, a vulnerable civilian populace, what would cross international law boundaries. Don't, so d- we're starting d- d- aren't to see you, Aren't you a little
0: is- nervous? When I see that, I can imagine a bunch of American jags sitting around a table saying, well, you can do that, but you can't do the other. Uh, it, it, it starts to feel that with the pulling of the punches as though it's got a government behind it.
1: It it might, it, or it just might be smart to do. And I would just say that if it was a government, let's say it was a government behind it, then what we are starting to see is a very different set of of norms in this space than people expected. Because what you got from various policy groups was this idea that certain critical infrastructure verticals were going to be off limits. Like you're not going to be able, able to hack water towers, for example. But instead, what we're seeing is an element of how do you take due diligence and due care when you do hack these things, which is, it's sort of very interesting to watch play out. So the cyber partisan effort, is it a government? Is it cyber partisans themselves? Is it like literally a hacktivist group, the rare one-off? It's, they're fascinating, you know, discoveries. They've been going on for a long time. This is a lot longer than most You know, major hacker groups last. If you think back, I mean, usually they end up leaving pretty quick. So this is one of those things that absolutely should not and could not be ignored, to be honest.
0: Yeah, it makes me very nervous. I cannot believe that the Russians can't find these guys. And now that they've really taken on something that Putin cares about, I I think the next time they announce how many of the hackers they have, it's going to be more like 20 or 15. But we'll see. (laughs)
2: Well, and again, the, this goes back to Dave's point about we don't know what we don't know. So Russia may have already figured out who it was and say it was. They may very well know. If it was a um, state, yeah, then,
0: state own, yeah, I agree. They if have they, their own guesses. Yes, I, uh, I, I, I have my guesses if it's a state. But we'll see if that's the case. He's just all, saving up his, his ammunition.
2: Yeah. And it all goes back, I think, to the whole conversation about deterrence and how cyber plays into that. And can you deter with cyber weapons or can you deter with cyber actions? Uh, Is it escalatory or deescalatory? And I think that, you know, it's a little scary and unfortunate that we're going to be using the Ukraine example as a testing ground for some of this strategy and policy. But I think that's where we've That's where we've come. I mean, obviously, Putin and Russia are showing uh, significant resolve, if not to invade Ukraine, then to threaten to invade Ukraine to get some sort of, you know, concessions or benefits out of it. So, you know, TBD on what actually happens. I mean, I think we're going to I think obviously there's a lot of stuff in the background that's going on that we don't know about.
0: I'm not making any predictions there Uh, to this blast from the past. I was just astonished to discover that a story from 2011 is back in the headlines and that it's taken this long. You know, I, I remember when HP bought a, a a big company in the UK and then almost immediately turned around and said, we've been ripped off. I, I think it cost the CEO his job. Uh, 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 the autonomy was the company. I, and, and no one knew for sure whether this was just sour grapes on HP's part or real fraud. But now it looks as though it was fraud for sure. Maury.
3: Well, it depends where you draw the line. I mean, I, I, you know, we just had a jury put Elizabeth Holmes in jail for um, what happened at Theranos. And, It's a question, how much tech company puffery do you allow? I think in my mind, there was little doubt from the beginning that it was somewhere between puffery and fraud. A court has now said there's fraud. And the Home Secretary has said, Mike Lynch, you should be extradited to the US to face criminal charges where your CFO was convicted. And he's appealing that. But the bottom line is, people are starting to say there's a limit to this puffery yeah. and and it's taken a long time to get through the courts in this case yeah
0: the cfo's already been convicted in the us which says to me it, it you know puffery that involves changing your your book probably always been uh, over the line and uh, i think it's fascinating that it'll be like 15 years before mike lynch gets through the us justice system although it Sure looks like he's going to be extradited uh, and prosecuted here. And, and we'll be talking about what was cool in 2011, uh, in 2024.
3: Yeah. Well, you say changing your books gets you Deloitte. Autonomy's auditors was also fined 15 million pounds over this matter. Yeah. So this, it it does appear that there were very bad facts here.
0: <laughs> yes. Okay. That, <laughs> yeah, uh, that, that sounds right. Uh, um. Can I ask you about another case in Europe? Intel had been fined a hundred million dollars for abuse of a dominant position for basically paying people not to install AMD chips in their computers. And this actually feels more like a time capsule than the Mike Lynch case, because the idea of Intel as having a dominant position, let alone abusing it, seems a little uh, musty. But they managed to get it overturned in the European... I I, I keep thinking of it as the court of first instance. What was the theory that won for them?
3: Well, first of all, it was a billion dollars. It was over a billion dollars. So... That starts to be real money, but you're right. The theory was um, abuse of a dominant position, and the court didn't question that Intel then had a dominant position. Now, like you say, they probably don't. But where they won it was the general court on referral from the Court of Justice, which is the higher level court, said that the European Commission had not established anti-competitive effects. Basically, it was that the theory and evidence had not been sufficiently explored to show that there was an anti-competitive effect from the rebates that were offered to Dell, HP, and Lenovo for installing Intel processors. And this is a really significant decision because it, it says you can't have a per se violation for being dominant. You also have to have a detailed factual and analytical showing of anti-competitive effects. And this will really matter In other similar cases. Yeah,
0: because, of course, the enthusiasm for antitrust uh, enforcement against Silicon Valley knows no bounds in Europe and really in the U.S., at least in this administration. So we're going to see a lot of enthusiasm for bringing these cases. And the only thing in Europe that is a constraint on that appears to be some of the judicial rulings.
3: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, the European Commission has Long been enthusiastic about antitrust um, rulings, and with uh, Margaret Vestager being, you know, keeping that role and stepping up as well, you know, I think it's only continuing. But this could be a significant barrier for her in some cases. All right.
0: We're uh, running low on time, but there was a lot of ink spilled about Israel and NSO and its contribution to Israel's emergence from diplomatic isolation in, in recent years. Dave, you read the stories. What did you think of them?
1: I think the first thing to recognize about the latest stories with regards to NSO Group is that there was a really, like, it's all really started in the New York Times here, where Ronan Bergman, and I think Mike Mazzetti, um, Mark Mazzetti maybe, did uh, a big expose on sort of a more modern look at the NSO Group's efforts and how they, in theory, also were selling NSO Group tools to the FBI and the United States, uh, CIA in particular. And there was a lot in the article. There was a ton in the article. But the, the first thing I always look at is, you know, who's writing the article? And Ronan is probably, you know, he's the author of Rise and Kill First, which is about the targeted assassinations that the Israelis did. And he probably is the single most, I would say, has the best access of any Israeli journalist today. Mm-hmm. So uh, it, hes it's very easy to believe what he's writing, I guess, is the easiest way to put it. And what he's writing is that this was a key part of, as we knew, the Israeli diplomatic efforts and resulted in success in terms of, you know, establishing the abraham Accords, so all the stuff that's happened in the past couple years and they went into some detail about it but the other side of the story was that you know not you know it's sort of hard on one hand for the united states to say we think you are being irresponsible but also have the fbi buy your tool and you know ask you to remove protections from your tool that prevented it from uh, targeting americans So the thing about this story, as with all tools in this space, is that the full story is very complicated, but also really messy. And I think what's going to end up happening, as everyone's pointed out, is that NSO group will probably fail. They will probably die. And in its place, two or three little tinier NSO groups will pop up with similar capabilities and similar clients. And it really comes down to, can we get the Israeli defense ministry on board with the kinds of policy we want them to enforce with their export control. And then the longer term plan is, are we going to notice when other countries like Saudi Arabia can build their own capabilities? That's really what's going to shock us. Because right now we assume, oh, it's an NSO group problem because we don't think the Saudi Arabians can write exploits. Yeah, But that's going to change quick.
0: Or they can buy them if they can't write them uh, and they can buy them from China
1: if they want them. I think that's what's happening now, right? So right now, NSO Group is saying, look, if you lock us out of the market, all you're doing is letting China into the market and Russia into the market. But I think the that's sort of a, a short-term strategy. And the longer-term strategy is, yes, all of these countries that we sort of don't think of as exploit writers are going to be able to build their own capability. And it's not going to be very long from now. So that's – it's sort of like what are the limits of national power when it comes to preventing proliferation in this space of capabilities is really a – a fun problem for us all to mull over whiskey.
0: Yep. Okay. uh, Let's just do a a few updates and quick hits and uh, go for the whiskey. Yeah. The FAA uh, we've covered before had announced that uh, nobody could use 5G because planes would crash. And it's now found a way to almost completely solve that problem. The problem appears to people have 50 and 60 year old technology that that is doing altitude determinations and the old technology was a bandwidth hog and was using bandwidth that had never been assigned to it and the fea's solution was to say well you know but they're using it so you can't use the um, bandwidth you were sold now it looks as though that's going to Happen only within a couple of miles of some airports while they try Speaking to. Speaking of out.
2: late to the party, oh my God. Yeah,
0: no. Well, I think they were all kind of, del- everybody was deliberately late to the party because they thought that if they waited, the other guy would have to blink. That's my guess. You know, it was the end of the Trump administration, the beginning of the Biden administration. There was nobody home when the time really came to to sit down and work it out. That's my guess. Anyway, we've had the crisis more or less. The FTC, I, this is one to watch. The FTC got a petition, which they are seriously considering doing rulemaking on, to prohibits surveillance advertising or at least regulate it as unfair competition to write rules about surveillance advertising. You know, we talked about regulatory swagger earlier. This, if the FTC does this, is the swaggeriest of swaggers because you're basically taking some of the, you know, the enormous gusher of income that Facebook and Google have been fattening on and saying, you know, we're going to tell you you can't do it that way. Uh, and it'll be a, a big, ugly fight and potentially change the economics of the entire Web 2.0 ecosystem. So that's a, that's a big deal if they take it as far as they could, and I'm guessing they will. Uh, and then just to, as a palate cleanser, the um, FTC has one of its big advantages is they can always offer you a settlement you can't afford to turn down because if you don't they can litigate with you inside the FTC for years by going through trials before ALJs that they have and then uh, appeals ultimately to the FTC before you even you know can see a court from there and The Supreme Court has just taken a case in which the petitioners said, that can't be right. We have a constitutional objection to how the FTC is structured, and we shouldn't have to go through years of litigation inside the FTC, which will never consider our uh, challenge fairly before we get to a court. And the Supreme Court said, well, that sounds like a cert-worthy question to us. So just as the FTC is poised to make a big leap into regulation, they also have somebody poised behind them uh, getting ready to trip them as they jump. And then uh, finally, the EU, I wouldn't be the cyber law podcast if I didn't notes uh, a little bit of Euro hypocrisy. Europol has just been slapped on the wrist for keeping a bunch of data longer than the privacy authority of the European Union thought was appropriate. And the result is that the French presidency has proposed a, a workaround to make sure that Europol can continue to be in business, a a favor they have never done for U.S. intelligence or law enforcement. That's the podcast. I want to thank Tatiana, Dave, and Maury for joining us. If you've got questions or comments, cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Leave us a rating. That'll be great. Uh, Thanks to Weissman Sound Design for our music. This has been episode 392 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson.